In Session with Dr. Farid Holakuru. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including uh, psychological or emotional issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I discuss the book from the past week, the book for this week is The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Dr. Claudia Gold. The Developmental Science of Early Childhood, Clinical Applications of Infant Mental Health Concepts from Infancy Through Adolescence. Um, And I'm really excited to read this book because it's recently published and it's looking at a lot of recent research uh, looking at the mental health or development of infants through adolescence, although the focus, I think, is on infant mental health, but how that can apply, can apply to all of childhood, and started just the intro so far, and it should be a good read. She does say it's made for practitioners, but when you read the reviews and people's comments, you see that it's also applicable for parents. So if you're a uh, new parent or going to be a parent soon, it might not be a book to, ch- it might not be a bad book to check out the developmental science of Early Childhood by Claudia M. Gold. I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. But the book from this past week was Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales. And uh, it was actually my first time reading the book in its entirety, and I really did enjoy it. Um, I'd seen Oliver Sacks speak, never in person, but If you haven't already, I would recommend, I said this last week, but his TED Talk, about 15 minutes long, where he talks about hallucinations and different things that we can learn from them. Uh, But you really see when you hear him talk, this very wise, brilliant, intelligent man who also appears very kind and compassionate. And you feel that when you read this book, because although he's talking about clinical tales and people who are sometimes dealing with some very bizarre neurological issues, he does it in a way that is very humanizing. He doesn't describe them just as a set of symptoms or uh, deficits, as he talks about, or issues, but really you feel like you understand the whole person, and even his interactions with his patients reflect that, that he is asking them a lot of questions, listening to what they have to say, and even at times almost consulting them as far as treatment and helping them develop the treatment together. So you really get the sense of someone who humanizes his patients, doesn't see them just as a set of symptoms or a disease, but as a whole person. And he even talks about that, how he thinks that in neurology there has been a movement away from seeing the whole person and just looking at symptoms and and uh, deficits, but that this is a mistake and we should move back, as he says, before we were more 
uh, looking at patients as a whole, not as just uh, symptoms and such. So I really like that approach, which I think is applicable to any field, definitely in psychology as well, not to just see a client as a diagnosis or a set of symptoms or unresolved issues, but seeing the person as a whole. And actually this new book that I'm reading this week appears to have that mindset also. Uh, Dr. Gold in the introduction that I read mentioned that a lot of healing and helping can happen just by listening to your clients. Parents come in worried about their kids and we think, and they even want from us to just tell them what to do, what's the next step. And she says that we need to actually work with them and recognize the parent is the expert. And if we ask more questions and understand what's going on better, we can actually help them deal with the issue in a much better way. So I like that approach and it has a very humanizing effect. But the title of the book itself, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, this comes from the first story that uh, he shares, the first clinical tale, which is of uh, a man named Dr. P. Of course, all the names are disguised to protect the identity of the individuals of the patients. But at one point, this individual, he says, he reached out his hand and took hold of his wife's head, tried to lift it off to put it on. He had apparently mistaken his wife for a hat. His wife looked as if she was used to such things. So this individual was dealing with um, a certain type of neurological issue. He had a hard time recognizing objects. Even when he would look at a face, it was as if he would look at the different parts of the face, a nose, a mouth, but not really as a whole. He was really able to identify a person or things. He handed him a rose at another time, and the person, he said, well, it's elongated in this way, and he was describing the color and those things, but he couldn't see it as a rose until he smelled it, and then he was able to recognize it as such and then see it in a way. So uh, it's interesting to see someone like this when you hear the story because in a lot of ways he was able to function in life and he was still teaching at a music school but his deficit showed itself in various ways and so uh, another theme that you feel throughout this book and that comes up in the book is you get amazed when you realize and recognize all of the things uh, our brain essentially does automatically it really is quite remarkable, and sometimes we don't recognize that until we see something missing, until we have a deficit of sorts. This is the same thing as, uh, I remember when I threw out my back last year, and it was the first time I had done that, I didn't realize all the things that just some small muscles on my back contributed to because I couldn't do so many things, um, and I re realized how limited I became without that. But our brain does so many functions, and throughout the book, you see how uh, a small injury can lead to huge deficits in functioning. For example, even standing up straight, there's this man who's, and a few stories like this, of people who are tilted, who don't realize they're standing over or tilted a little bit like the Tower of Pisa until you put a mirror in front of them and they can recognize that because there's various functions in our brain, the vestibular tubulars and other things that help us maintain our balance. Something that we don't think about. None of us thinks about walking upright, but it's something that we do naturally or recognizing faces, recognizing things. That's not something we think about. You just automatically see them. And this gives us an idea of why it's so hard to create a computer that can recreate the processing power of the brain. 
because it does so many things and so many functions that we take for granted. And it's quite incredible that it's able to do those things, but it's very hard to reproduce that in a computer. So when you read this, for me, it's a reminder of how lucky we are and the delicate balance that exists in our brains and in our bodies that allows us to be healthy, that we might not realize it, but there's so much going on within us that allows for us to do all the things that we do, and that is really quite remarkable. Now, you also see people who have lost memory. For example, people who are dealing with Korsakoff syndrome, uh, which is due to uh, excessive alcohol uh, consumption, which leads to uh, anterograde amnesia, meaning that you can't form new memories, and this can happen to varying degrees, and you meet someone who is stuck in the 1940s, and I think when he's telling the stories, it's a few decades after that. And even he himself thinks he's a young man, but then when he shows him a mirror, he's shocked to see that he has white hair and a white beard, or white in his hair and beard, and really is stunned because he still thinks he's back in 1945, but doesn't realize it's been a few decades since then. And so he can't form new memories. So if you ask him what's going on, he reports of that time period as if it's the current time, a few decades earlier. And, and this brings up the issues which I brought up in Joshua Fowler's book, When Walking with Einstein, that he discussed about who are we and how do we identify ourself. And as uh, Dr. Sachs mentions in this book, you know, we ask people when we're learning about someone, we might say, hey, what's his story? Because essentially our story is a big part of who we are. Without our memories, it's hard to see what is me, what is that I-ness that makes me who I am. So it's interesting and sometimes very heartbreaking when you see these stories or read these stories of people who don't have the ability to form new memories and you really do feel like, well, who is he now or who is she now that they can't form any memories? What is their source of identity? What really makes us who we are? And as I mentioned last week, what helps us create relationships is that ability to remember shared experiences. Without that, how close do you feel to someone? That is a big part of it. So you realize what you miss when you lose your memory, your ability to um, remember things and to form new memories. Now, another interesting idea in this book is that in a way there can sometimes be positive effects of these illnesses or deficits, which reminded me of the book uh, A First Rate Madness that looked at some powerful leaders and how they might have been great leaders, not despite of their mental illnesses, but because of their mental illnesses, which gave them an edge in particular ways. But in this case, one of them is you meet Witty Tiki Ray, as he goes by, who deals with Tourette syndrome, which overall causes a lot of deficits in how he can function day to day, although at the same time it does give him some benefits. He's a little bit quicker and wittier. And also he plays drums in a jazz band. And because of his spontaneity and the way that he sometimes has these quick reactions that can turn into improvisational drum solos, he actually is quite good. But it's partially because of his Tourette's that he's able to be so good, especially when it comes to something like jazz that involves spontaneity that he's able to use. And so he goes on Haldol, a drug that was being used then, I'm not sure if it still is, to treat Tourette's, which calms him down, which makes it easier for him to function 
in his day job, but then he loses this side of his personality, the quick-wittedness and his ability to spontaneously um, play drums the way that he played and be a talent. And so what he actually eventually learns to do, and he asks uh, Dr. Sachs if he can do this, is to, during the week, take the medication, the Haldol, but then for the weekends to not be on it. So in a way, there's almost two sides of him, the one side that uh, has the medication and is more common than the other side where he can express this side of himself or this side of the illness, if you want to call it that, which for me is using that word even we should be aware of because when we think of illness, we just think of a purely negative thing, a thing that's all bad. But as we can see, there can maybe be some positive aspects to something that overall might seem like an illness or a, a disease. Another interesting chapter I found that actually made me laugh was one that was called The President's Speech. And in it, he describes how they were playing, it seems something like the State of the Union Address or something, and you can be pretty sure it's President Reagan because he talks about the actor, uh, charmer, president. And it's a group of patients in the ward who can't understand words or language very well. They can't understand the meaning of words, but you find them cracking up as they're watching um, the president give his speech, laughing so hard. And when you ask them to explain or what they explain is that because his uh, mannerisms and the way he's talking and his tone it seems so disingenuous, it makes them laugh. And so they're just cracking up laughing. And what he points out, what Dr. Sachs points out, which is very interesting to me, was us who pick up everything, we get fooled by the way that the mannerisms and the words can deceive us. But those who actually are missing part of the equation can see through it better and they don't get deceived. They can actually recognize that he is not being genuine at all and there is a lot of um, falsity in what he is expressing, which I thought was really interesting. And you kind of make, you kind of laugh reading that chapter because of how hard they're laughing hearing what seems to be a serious speech, but because to them it seems ridiculous. Uh, so he shares various tales. There's like 20 plus chapters of different stories and you get to feel that you know these people, including the last section of the book, which deals with um, individuals who are mentally handicapped in some ways. And he uses some older terminology that I don't think is used as much like the term even idiot, which in a way was considered scientific before, but we don't use that anymore. Describe individuals um, who have uh, some type of special talent, whether it's mathematical talent or in some, one of the chapters an artistic talent, um, something we might call idiots, idiot savants, a term that you might not hear as much anymore. But people who are have a deficit in a certain way, this way, a mental handicap, but are able to perform in some way uh, exceptionally well. And so he points again that we shouldn't just see the deficit in an individual, recognize their strengths, even when we're testing them. And he talks about how the tests are made to find deficits, to find the problems, to break them down. But we should actually see the person as a whole and recognize what do they also have to contribute? What are their strengths? What are their capabilities? And maybe they even have a special talent that if we don't allow them to express it, we'll, we'll miss and we'll never get to see. So I thought that was interesting too to hear his perspective on that and those stories. So if you haven't read this book, it is a classic, Oliver Sacks, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I would highly recommend it. And if you don't want to read his whole book, I would at least recommend you see his talk 
Uh, one of them is a TED Talk that's about 15 minutes long on hallucinations. Um, but you really learn a lot from this very wise man, and I'm glad to have read this book. And again, the book for this week is The Developmental Science of Early Childhood by Claudia M. Gold. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tawakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, doctor. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I need to talk to you regarding a taboo subject in the Persian community, mm-hmm. regarding um, sexual partners, sex before marriage. When is the right time to have a sexual relationship with your partner? If you want it, because you don't know if you're going to get married with this person or not. Mm-hmm. How long do you wait? So I need your opinion on that. Well, I, I, I'm not going to give strict numbers or guidelines if that's what you're looking for. And of course, an issue like this is very complicated and complex. It involves lots of different issues, one of which includes things like uh, religious ideas or ideals or laws that people hold on to and related to that, how that affects the culture. And then culturally, we have issues related to sex. And as you mentioned, it's taboo, but also different norms that we might place on men and women about whether it's okay or not okay, or even praised or vilified, depending on if you're a man or a woman, which makes it even more complex. So there's a lot of those issues going on. But then also when we look at the relationship itself, one issue that um, is important is to recognize that sex does have an effect. I, I know some of the science, but not enough to give a full detailed explanation, but it does release certain neurotransmitters and hormones and chemicals, things like uh, oxytocin that can make us more bonded to the person. And we might feel more of an investment to the relationship earlier on than we have actually gotten to know the person. So we have to be aware of the possibility or the uh, consequences of having sex. This is not me saying don't have sex or do have sex, but it's saying we have to just be aware of the reality of what we're doing. What are you trying to create and have? If you are uh, being aware of the relationship and what you're developing, you, you want to be aware of the effects of that, um, of what's happening there. So did you have a specific question or some thoughts of your own about that? Well, my question, you know, you touched on several subjects. Obviously, in the Persian community regarding men having sexual partners, they are looked at differently mm-hmm. than if a woman has the same amount of sexual partners. They are looking, they're looked at differently. Yeah. So we have that going on. And then mm-hmm. also, as you get older and you know, maybe you've had your marriage now and you're just looking for a loving relationship, when is a good time? Like, after how many months? Because maybe you don't want to get married. Maybe you don't want to have that piece of paper, but you want to have that relationship. And it's supposed you're a healthy person. You need to have sex two to three times per week. But then if you don't want to marry this person that you are dating, 
how long do you wait? I mean, there's just so many information out there and so many do's and don'ts. So I was just curious about your point of view on sure. that subject. Well, you know, there, there, yeah, you can look online and probably find thousands of people giving their opinion on do's or notes, uh, do's and don'ts, but we have to also recognize that they might even be disagreeing, right? So at the end of the day, you have to do something that you feel comfortable with. There isn't a blanket, I would say, right or wrong of how to deal with it. But we do want to look at if there is science out there looking at research. Yes, you read some of that. But then you have to reflect on yourself because what is it that sex means to you, the individual? What do you feel about having sex before marriage? Because you've brought that up a few times that, well, what if you want to have a long relationship but you don't want to marry the person? So it shows clearly for you that rule or law or norm, whatever it might be, is something that is significant for you that stands out that if you are having sex outside of marriage you're doing something immoral or wrong or that makes you bad or even worse than just using the word bad maybe label yourself with some word that's derogatory that i won't use or different types of terms like that that you might be thinking for yourself so uh, that's also a big part of it is it's a personal decision obviously, but it's also personal in the sense that there isn't one right answer for everyone that I would say after four months, you know, what it almost sounds like now I'm realizing hearing your question is that, well, you're saying the religion says this and that's a law and a rule. But then if you hear some other authority, in this case, maybe me saying after four months, it's okay. Me saying it's okay now makes it feel not bad anymore because I, I'm yeah, saying that. As far as drug concern, it's like, don't do it at all. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's like as if, you know, the way I'm hearing what you're saying, and many people have this is, okay, I think that's maybe too extreme to say not at all or something like that or never before marriage. But then when is it okay? And you want to get an, you want to get that okay. And well, no, no, I just wanted to have that dialogue with okay. you. And I wanted your personal opinion or, you know, guidelines from your point of view, if at all possible. Yeah, I mean, for me, well, there's a few things. Someone also, they can ask themselves, what are they looking for at this time? If they were looking for something casual, then again, there's still risks involved, and obviously uh, of disease and pregnancy, obviously, but even in emotional investment and things of that nature. But they might have a different decision than if they're looking for a long-term relationship so that's why it's very hard for me to to give that i mean i'm giving you some of the the different things i would look at um but the person has to only do it when they feel comfortable and ready so obviously we don't want to feel pressured by the other person in the relationship or pressured by others or pressured by norms we have to feel okay about that because we have to live with that decision now on the same hand what we have to be aware of is some of the things that we think or a lot of what we think and feel about things like sex are not necessarily things we necessarily think and feel, but what we've been told by others to think and feel. So here's where we have to do our own personal exploration of what we've been taught, what have people shown us and told us we should and shouldn't do. How much of that do we actually agree with and believe and want to live our life by and then come to our own truth, that own feeling that we have? Um, some things, you know, people will say because you're bringing this up and said you wanted to have a discussion. The idea for me that you need to hurry up and have sex to see if there's that chemistry. I think that's, I don't agree with that. Um, is there something to sexual chemistry? Of course. But I think that if you create 
a good relationship and there is sexual attraction, you can work on sexual issues and make those work. So I don't agree with that idea that we have to test that to see what's there uh, to make sure we have something. If you have a sexual attraction, that's going to be the basis to build the sexual relationship. And even with people who are attracted and everything's okay, sexual issues come up and it's something you can work through. It's not just a, okay, we tested it, we know it's good kind of a thing. It's, it's much more complicated than that. So that's something that if, when people use that excuse or that reason for why they need to hurry up and have sex, I, I disagree with that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Any, other, any other thoughts or questions on that? Well, I disagree with the fact that I understand a certain amount of time and mm-hmm. getting to know each other and finding out who the right, you know, if you guys are, you can connect with each other mentally, you guys are on the same values, attractions, all of that. But then, you know, with the complex, especially with the Persian community and with the amount of the damage that are done to children, both men and women. Mm-hmm. And as far as one of the main things with gentlemen is their premature ejaculation and with women, you know, holding back. So there are so much going on. And if this person does not admit that they do have premature ejaculation problems, and majority or a lot of them are very hesitant in getting help and they don't think there is anything wrong with them so so many issues come up mm-hmm. and it's such a complex sure well no you're right it is and you know uh, you know issues like that if they i was going to say with help it can be helped but if the person doesn't want to get help then you're in trouble and but the problem is someone who doesn't want to get help with that unfortunately probably won't want to get help in other areas too or won't want to work on other areas and that person likely won't be a good partner for a lot of reasons but yes there's a lot of issues that it is good that you're bringing them up another one that's very important for me related to you mentioned the female and when it comes to pleasure is that sex is made forbidden for women or if you have it you're bad and immoral and you bring shame to the family shame to yourself and it's all these things before you're married and then once you're married it's this wonderful thing and you should want it all the time and enjoy it and all, and all that with your husband now it's totally okay whereas the feeling of pleasure and letting yourself be sexual is not something like a light switch and now all of a sudden because you had a wedding you're going to be able to feel that and experience it very comfortably. It's very complex. So you see a lot of women who now they're in a marriage and they still have a hard time enjoying sex because their whole life they were told it was bad to do so. And now all of a sudden there's an expectation to want sex and to want it all the time and to enjoy it and to make their husband happy, um, which you know is not that easy. And on top of that, even this idea of making the husband happy, very often the sexual relationship is seen as something for the man more than it is for the woman, and her pleasure is considered secondary, if even uh, important, which is not good, and that that's important for us to talk about. And lastly, related to your what you just mentioned about premature ejaculation, and there's other issues as well, is the idea that we have to be able to talk about sex in the relationship. I often will see couples either in therapy or you'll just hear about it where they've been married 
10 years, 15 years, and they never have once talked about their sex life. And there's this idea that because sex is something natural or we're naturally attracted to one another, you don't need to talk about it or figure it out. It should just work. And that's not the case. We are naturally attracted to each other, but it doesn't mean we naturally um, are going to have good and healthy sex and we won't have any issues. Just like we're attracted to each other, but it doesn't mean we're going to have good and healthy relationships without working things out and maybe getting help. And we're naturally drawn towards having children, but it doesn't mean we're going to be good parents just because we're naturally have a desire to have kids. So um, it's very important, and that's why it is good that you brought this up as far as the taboo goes, yes, about sex before marriage and all that. That's very important to talk about and to consider. But then even within relationships for partners to realize we have to talk about sex and we shouldn't be afraid to offend our partner to bring it up or we shouldn't think we can't bring it up or shouldn't bring it up. And, and if it's taboo, even in our most intimate relationship, that's a big problem. And so if you're a couple out there and you never talked about sex with your partner, uh, take that initiative to say we need to talk about this aspect of our relationship. Doesn't always even mean something's wrong, but we can always make it better too and, and strengthen that aspect, a very a very important aspect of the relationship. So, um, yes, we we have to get it out of the taboo and realize it's okay to talk and even to think and reflect on these types of issues because they are a, a big part of life. Should you ask your partner how many partners they had in the past, and should you tell them how many you have? Or I think you that just let them know that that is something that was happened before. Yeah, I think that's that. You know, you and we should keep that right. You know, you that know. Yes, history. You're not the first one, and you know what? Let's just leave it at that, and let's just concentrate on this relationship. This yeah, I think you know that. Um, it's a very loaded question, obviously. It's not just someone gathering <laughs> statistics or you know, wanting to know, especially from a male perspective. It's an idea that having sex for the woman is a bad thing. And if she's had many partners, that somehow reflects poorly on her or even her quality as a mate. And so the question isn't just a question. It has a lot behind it. Um, and overall, like you in, in a way alluded to, the past should be more of a mystery as far as not getting into details they should know the generals long relationships of course if you are married or engaged living with a partner those types of things but number of sexual partners is a question that the curiosity we can understand at times people are going to wonder but to get into those details is not going to be beneficial and we have to be okay not talking about that and wonder why the person is asking that what is it mean to them how do they view things how do they see things because that might show itself in other ways as well hmm. yeah exactly but thank uh, you that makes perfect sense thank yeah. you so much for your time sure thanks for your call thanks for the question have a good night pleasure okay all right going into our last commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you're listening to in session with dr fatty Tulakwi. we'll be right back back um you know something in relations last segment was about uh, the caller asked about sex and I'm, I'm glad we got to have that discussion but i was thinking of another topic uh, today and something i've talked about before when it comes to relationships and how when we have arguments and we can even call them fights the way that most people 
approach them. And the mindset that we tend to have that unfortunately is not contributing to a positive relationship with our partner. And that mindset is trying to win the fight. And that's what we think. When we think of a fight, we think of a winner and a loser. Who won, who lost. And when we're having a fight, we think we want to be the winner and make sure we're not the loser and make sure the other person loses. But this is when we bring an adversarial mindset that we tend to have when it comes to fights, arguments, disagreements, and we bring them into our relationship, which is something that's collaborative, something that is about togetherness, about being together, working together, building a relationship together. And this is where we get it wrong. Um, and so when we have a fight, we have to be aware of this idea or even before the fight, because what happens is when we get angry, we do want to lash out at the person in front of us. Unfortunately, we might take this to extreme degrees, but in general, the response is I'm angry because you hurt me or I'm angry because of something unfair that either you did or that is happening. And I have to make sure you either change it or pay the price or something has to happen. So we do feel like it becomes us against them. But what we want to make sure is between ourselves and our partner, we have this feeling of this relationship that is, this is all about me and you together. We are working together. If I win the fight and you lose the fight, what happens? I feel good for it maybe for a moment and I get my trophy for winning the fight, but I go have that trophy and go alone in the room by myself. I'm alone. I'm isolated. I'm not connected to you. You don't get anything from winning against your partner. You want to win with your partner. That's what I always tell couples. You don't want to win against each other. You want to win with each other. And what that means is that your mindset is very different going into the discussion that I'm not trying to beat my partner, prove that they are wrong or more guilty than I am or prove my own innocence. I'm trying to come to a better place with them. And so what we have to recognize is we have to take the courtroom out of our bedroom or take the courtroom out of our relationship. When you're in court, both sides present their case. They use evidence. They use arguments to try to make the other person look guilty, look bad, um, show why they're right and try to win and prove that the other person is bad. And at the end, there's one verdict which says who's right or wrong or who wins or loses. And that's what we think we're supposed to be doing. But this is not the right mindset to have when it comes to our relationship. Now, what does it take to not bring this attitude into the relationship? Well, one important thing and or overall the fundamental thing we're looking at is the quality of the relationship between the two partners, which might sound obvious, but is very important. Because if I don't feel that you have my best interests at heart, if I don't feel like you care about me and what's happening to me and that you are trying to help me, or even worse, if I have somewhere in my mind this idea that you're out to get me or hurt me or you're against me. And unfortunately, many people have this in their romantic relationships. You might think, well, this is the person who's going to be your partner. You're supposed to be together and do everything together and be together and be strong together. But many partners bring into their, their relationship this idea that they have to protect themselves from their partner. And unfortunately, I've seen this a lot in Persian uh, relationships. And I don't think it's limited to 
limited to the Persian community, but with many clients that I work with, I get this sense, whether in couples therapy or in individual therapy, that they have to protect themselves from their partner. For example, why would I be vulnerable with him or her? All that would do is give them ammunition to use against me in a fight or in an argument or in some way to manipulate me. So I have to to keep my insecurities to myself. I have to keep my vulnerabilities, anything I might perceive as a weakness to myself because they might use it against me. And even as I'm describing that, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that it sounds like we're talking about two people going to battle with each other. We're looking at a war rather than looking at a relationship. If I'm afraid to show you my weaknesses because then I'll be exposed and you're going to hurt me, then how am I supposed to consider you my partner and someone who is working together with me to create a beautiful life and potentially a beautiful family? So this mindset we have to get away from, this idea that I have to protect myself from you. Or if you have that mindset, first you have to recognize, is this something about me? Because some people have this way of thinking about uh, relationships or this way of thinking about life, that it's everyone against one another. So you have to look at yourself first and see, is this something that I'm bringing into the relationship because that's my own mindset? Was this something I saw in my own parents or was it something I heard from my family? Some families really put this into their kids very strongly, this idea that everyone is out to get you, everyone is manipulating one another, everyone is trying to win. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Either you're the winner or the loser, and make sure you're not the loser. So don't show weakness, manipulate if you have to, do whatever it is you need to do, lie, cheat, to make sure you win. And this is in every relationship, not just even with outsiders, but you essentially learn to do this with everyone, including the person you choose as your partner. So first you have to reflect on yourself. Is this something I bring to the table? Because if it is, it is it's something you have to work on and you can work on it, but it'll probably take you some time to shift this perspective. Of course, things like therapy can be very helpful along with reflection and other things that you can do, but it, it is something that can be done, but you have to first recognize it and want to make that change. It's also possible that you're with a partner that you don't trust, that maybe it's not you, it's partially them, that they are not someone that you feel has your best interests at heart, or you don't feel that they're someone you can trust and rely on and feel that they will put your best interests in mind and not want to hurt you in any way, that they would never use a vulnerability or a weakness of yours or an insecurity against you, they would actually want to protect you from being hurt. So ask yourself, do I feel like I trust my partner? Now, it could feel hard for you to determine, is it me that doesn't trust and isn't trusting, or is it that I have an untrustworthy partner? And to complicate that even further, what we sometimes find and very often find is that people who are not very trusting, who can be suspicious and paranoid, choose someone who is unreliable and untrustworthy in a way almost unconsciously to confirm what they already believe, which we all too often do. So it gets very complicated, but it's something we need to look at. Is it me or is it them or is it this relationship that we have created together? Because the mindset of me versus you in our relationship is not going to work. And you don't see this in couples who have long healthy relationships and marriages. They don't have that attitude that it's me against you. They have the feeling of it's me and you together. We're in this together. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get upset at one another, that we don't get mad, we don't get hurt. That all is going to happen even in the midst of a very good relationship with two loving people who care about each other and have each other's best interests at heart. We're still going to get upset at what someone does or says, and that's what we have to make sure we communicate to each other. So that still is going to be there. And you might even get heated in your arguments, but never do you have this feeling that I have to beat you, I have to win against you, and that I get some satisfaction at beating you. What we want to have is the attitude of finding a truth together. And part of that truth almost always is going to be I'm sure I did some things that were hurtful. I'm sure you did some things that were hurtful. I'm sure there's some things I can do better and there's some things you can do better. And let's figure those things out together. And most importantly, I'm not going to try to figure out you, how you have to change. I want to work on how I can change to make things better. I want to contribute more. So if you find yourself in a fight, in an argument, and you realize how much you're insisting on being right, on making sure you win, If you can stop yourself, great. It's very hard to do that in the moment. But at least afterwards, if you can reflect on that and realize, wow, I was really trying to win. And what's what's the point of that? Why do I want to win against my partner? Why would I want to do that to him or her and, and hurt them just to make me feel good for the moment? Hopefully you can recognize how um beneficial it would be to shift this mindset, how hurtful it is to not have that mindset or hurtful it is to have that mindset of trying to win against your partner. And how can we shift that to make it more me and you together? At the end of an argument, an end of a discussion, hopefully you come to a place where you both see things more clearly in the same way. But most couples, what they try to do is make the other person see it their way alone. And so if you respect and love your partner, when you see that they think something different from you, feel something different from you, have a different perspective from you, and if you value what they have to say and what they think and feel, you'll want to understand it. Imagine if you were to go see a doctor about what's going on with you medically. You want to know what she has to say about your issues or whatever you're dealing with because you respect that person. You appreciate that they know things that you might not, that you actually value what they have to say. And we should treat our partners in the same way. If they have a different point of view, we value that. Okay, I saw this, you see that. I want to understand why you saw that. And let me explain to you what I saw so you can see that too, and we can somehow come together. But when you see partners who are just trying to win, you never see a recipe for a healthy and happy relationship. Every argument And discussion can either be something that brings you closer together or makes you further apart. And if you're fixated on trying to win the argument and trying to beat your partner, you're just going to get more and more distant. Even if you feel like you're racking up victories and feel good about that, you don't get anywhere as far as the winning goes. But if through each argument you see this as an opportunity to actually get closer to your partner, to potentially work through some issues that you have, something that's going on between the two of you, then arguments and discussions can actually be the cause of getting closer to each other. And this is what we see in relationships that work. They might not always like the way it feels when they're having an argument or a heated discussion, but they value them highly because they know that this is what actually allows them to, one, work through relationships and And two, through that, understand their partner better. And three, come to a better place 
and feel closer to each other. Feel like, okay, now, now we see things more eye to eye. I understand where you're coming from. You understand where I'm coming from. You understand something that you've done before that hurts me. And if you care about me, you won't do that anymore. And I believe that you will and vice versa. I know things that I do that hurt you or upset you. And now I can change those things. And this is something you see a lot of times with couples who genuinely love each other is they'll have an argument and say, I didn't even know she didn't like that. But now that I know I'm not going to do that anymore. When you see couples that aren't in that good place and it's combative, the focus is more on showing I'm not guilty. If you got hurt, it's because you're sensitive or you're sick or you have problems or whatever it might be. We're more focused on not being guilty than actually valuing what our partner is thinking and feeling. If you got hurt by something I did, I should value that no matter what. doesn't mean I'm a bad person if you feel hurt, but I actually am a bad person if I don't value your feelings. And that's what I'm supposed to be doing in the relationship. So always it's you and your partner together, not you versus me. It's you plus me, you and me. And we shouldn't try to win against our partners. We should always try to win with our partners, win together. So take the courtroom and take the war zone out of your relationship and make sure it's a collaborative rather than adversarial relationship that you are building. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to the caller and the listeners out there in Fahude who's here in the studio. Tonight, I also want to announce the book of the week again. It is The Developmental Science of Early Childhood, Clinical Applications of Infant Mental Health Concepts from Infancy Through Adolescence. And the author is Claudia M. Gold. And as always, please send your recommendations to me for books that you think would be good for books of the week. Many people have not done that online. I really do appreciate that. Please keep sending those my way. All right. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Hope you have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.